I believe that veterans are the key to unlocking America's next golden age. By empowering and influencing one million veterans to transition well and become leaders in their communities, we can unlock our country's destiny and continue to change the world. My name is Bernard Bergen. Michael S. Irwin is a graduate of West Point and served two tours in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. He now serves as the CEO of the Character and Leadership Center and the president of the Positivity Project. He's also the founder and chairman of Team Red, White, and Blue, a veteran support nonprofit with more than 100,000 members nationwide. Mike continues to serve as a major in the Army Reserve and is an assistant professor in leadership and psychology at West Point. He lives with his family in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Let's get started. What would you say to the younger you right when you were starting your military service? As I think about when I started, for me, that conversation can't happen outside of the context of when it took place. And that was that I, I was commissioned on June 1st, 2002. So uh, you know, about nine months after September 11th of 01. So you know, for me, as I look back of, you know, and what I could tell my younger self, I think that, you know, where I could have been better and what I would have done, a, you know, a little bit more effectively in my early days was to strike a little bit better balance um, between how much I was, you know, committing myself to, you know, my army time, but also with the other side of my life. Mm -hmm. And I basically, I was either all on in the army, focusing about deployments or focusing about training, or I was all about partying and traveling, you know, and I didn't really do, you know, enough to professionally develop myself okay. um, in, those, in those early years. And, and I mean that, you know, not in a really self-critical way, but, you know, the stakes were pretty high coming out of 9-11 after 9-11 in, in those early years. And I, I think that it's really important that, you know, we think about the value of every minute of the day. Mm -hmm. And I've come to really appreciate that, you know, as someone now 37 years old, and I think that my mindset was that I kind of viewed, hey, when I was on the clock, when I was training, when I was at work, I was work focused. But you know, you can also think about how to improve yourself and better yourself outside of those work hours. And I would definitely tell my younger self to think about ways to improve, you know, on the weekends and doing things like races and training, but also reading more and things like that. Okay. Okay. I think that's very clear. Just to you know, ask a supplement question right there is, so are you saying that you would have want to had a better uh, track of every second of your calendar? Or was it more just being deliberate about your time away from your on duty service? Yeah, I, th I think probably more of the latter, more of being deliberate and spending more time improving myself when I was off the clock, if you will. Okay. Um, and part of it was probably just the function that I was younger. And, you know, sometimes you got to travel and do some of those things while you're younger. But I think that for me, part of it was also, you know, that I just necessarily was not as focused on rounding myself out as much as, as a young professional. And I think that that becomes really important. And people who can do that effectively from a young age, I think it really can pay huge dividends for you both personally and professionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, would the younger version of you have taken that advice or would there have been some pushback? Yeah, honestly, I do think as I think about this, that I, there, there might've been some pushback, but I think that I would have taken that advice. I would have been receptive to it because as I think to, you know, where I was spending my time, you know, a lot of times it just was the social norm 
of, hey, if you're not on the clock, if you're not preparing and training for Iraq or Afghanistan, that you should really you know, spend that time um, you know, socializing, partying, traveling, et cetera. Yeah. And so I do think that if I had a mentor who kind of pinned me in, in a corner and said, I said, hey, I really think that you should think hard about this, that I would have been receptive you know, to that advice. Okay. Okay. I think that's great. And I, I love asking that question specifically because, you know, there's so many young service members right now who are in that same uh, mind state of, hey, I work hard. I do my 12 hour days. And when I'm off, I'm off, you know, and I think just hearing some feedback from those of us who've journeyed a bit further really helps them build those decisions into their lives. And again, you don't have to cancel travel completely out. But like you mentioned, you could be more deliberate about when and where. Absolutely. Great, great. So when you have these conversations about individuals wanting to serve right now, what do you usually share? And how do you usually bring that to the table? Now, the good news is that in my role as an Army Reserve officer, I get to engage with these young men and women every summer. And so I'm here right now at West Point and talking to them about this stuff every day. I'm also teaching psychology to them. And we have this conversation you know, about the role of service and the importance of what they're training and what they're preparing to do. But I also do some work back in North Carolina in my home with students that are in high school who are interested in either going into the military and especially who are those who are interested in going to West Point, to the U.S. Military Academy. And the conversation for me continues to revolve and comes back to the idea of how important it is for our nation, for the benefit of our nation, to have men and women like them step up and to lead. And so much of what I share with them is just that, you know, that, that one, you know, we need you, but two, that the ways that you can lead, it's, it does not have to be obviously the same way, you know, in terms of the various roles and that you can play within the profession, as you know, very often, I think a lot of people think the military is very, you know, one or two dimensional. And as you know, in reality, there's, you can be in communications, intelligence, engineers, yeah, you know, there's just so much that you can do within the military. And, um, and having that conversation with them, I think, is also important because they often don't know what they don't know. And right. the realization is you can serve the nation in many ways. And yeah. you don't necessarily have to serve as an infantry you know, officer or a soldier on the front lines. Right. There's a whole, bunch, a whole bunch of ways that you can serve and support the nation through that. Yeah, yeah. And that's so powerful for me to hear. And I know that many of our listeners will enjoy hearing that as well, because, you know, I think there's this disconnection with the need for service men and women. And I think the need has never changed. It's actually increased because of the integrity, the principles, the values. And I think at times that there's a disconnect, as you mentioned, between how serving and serving in your skill sets, whatever the, those are, really helps you tap into the very foundation of our country and helps us keep that foundation strong as we move forward. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're exactly correct. And obviously, just with the seemingly never-ending conflict that we have going on right now, there's going to be a, a continued need for men and women to step up and to step forward. And we absolutely need that, not just for the good of our military, for the good of our nation, but also for the good of our democracy and the future of, of our country. So there's yeah. a whole bunch of reasons why we need people to raise their hand and to come forward. Okay. Okay. Now, our next question is usually the one that kind of challenges our guests the most. And, and I know you've seen this from so many different vantage points, given your storied career. One word answer. When I say military transitions, what would you say? Difficult. Okay. I mean, it's difficult. 
no matter how good the job you have on the outside, no matter how much support you have, no matter how confident you are in yourself or your skill set, it is a difficult transition to hang up the, you know, the uniform and to move on. No doubt about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. Just your background lends to seeing so many aspects of the same story. And, you know, for our next question, I'll let you talk a bit about what you do now, some of your nonprofit work, and just touch on your leadership work as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so Team Red, White, and Blue is the nonprofit organization that I founded, and I still serve on the board of directors here. I founded it back in March of 2010, and we're sort of about seven, seven and a half years old, and our mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans by connecting them to their community through physical and social activity. So much of what we do is not just helping veterans to stay active physically, but it's also to help them to meet new people in their communities. And that's why I say the the one one word that really came to mind is difficult is because I've seen this time and time again. No, again, no matter how much you, you you have going on in your life, no matter how much you've got, it is definitely challenging for people to make that transition. That's what we do. So we help veterans to make that transition. And we're very honored to play the role that we do for so many veterans. And uh, as we continue to do that, you know, we know that we can really not just enrich their lives, but also help them to grow as leaders in their communities and in their new jobs. One of the other roles in leadership that I have is I'm the co-founder and the president of a nonprofit organization called The Positivity Project. And we're about a year and a half right now, maybe not quite two years old. And our mission is to empower America's youth to build strong relationships by recognizing, appreciating, and exemplifying the character strengths in us all. Essentially, what we do is we partner with schools across America, and we train the teachers, counselors, and principals in positive psychology, and then we empower them to take our strategy and to teach their students about character every single day for 10 minutes a day. Oh, wow. And it's really exciting, the impact we're having. We've grown from 33 schools to now about 160 schools this year. And we're going to continue to grow all across America. And again, our focus really is on helping students to better understand who they are, to be more authentically confident in who they are, but also to better understand other people. So much of life, as you know, is about how well you can relate to other people Mm -hmm. and how well you understand them. And we are really, through our 24 character strengths of positive psychology and through our strategy, we're really working to help those starting as young as kindergarten, you know, helping students to better understand who they are, but also to understand their classmates and their teachers. And we're really excited to see this organization grow and its impact. This year will be affecting over 100,000 students and 9,000 teachers and staff. Wow. Starting in, uh, in September. And then, yeah, and then also on the leadership side, I, I do some leadership work for adults. And I do that through the Character and Leadership Center. And uh, I just wrote a book, co-authored a book that came out. I wrote it with federal judge Ray Kethledge, and it released in June. And it's been a real joy to see seven years of analysis and writing come to fruition. And so both the book and the leadership development for adults really focuses in on two things. One, leadership is a relationship. And then two, the first person you need to lead, however, is yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the one-two combination, the one-two punch that we have and that I think about when I think about leadership is you need to lead yourself first. You need to have clarity. You need to have conviction with who you are 
and the right decisions you need to make as a leader, but you also need to build relationships with other people because building relationships is central to life satisfaction and it's also central to being successful in life. So that's really what we hone in on and focus in on at you know the Character and Leadership Center. So yeah, so I've got my hands in, in multiple different leadership efforts and they each come with their own unique challenges, but more importantly, there are continued opportunities to grow and to hopefully make a positive impact on other people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Two questions. What started you down the journey of really teaching character development and leadership and also the byline of your book really stands out to me because it says your title is Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. I'd love for you to touch on that inspiring leadership through solitude piece. Absolutely. So the book is a collection of profiles of powerful historical leaders, people like General Eisenhower, Jane Goodall, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, General G Ulysses S. Grant, some of the, the most prominent leaders of the past 150 years. And really, it's, but it's also the, this analysis of contemporary leaders as well. And one of the things we profile in the book is the role that solitude played in some of their most formative leadership moments. So Eisenhower before D-Day, Jane Goodall in 1960 in what is currently Tanzania. Most people don't know Martin Luther King Jr. was only 25 years old when he started to lead the civil rights movement, 25. I mean, I'm, I'm 37 right now, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And he earned his doctorate from Boston University. He grew up in Atlanta. It's not even like he was from Montgomery, Alabama, where he started to take this leadership role. So the big so what of all those stories, and one of the things that connects them all together is that in some of these most formative moments, leaders, whether they did it intentionally or instinctively, they knew that they needed to step back from all the noise and all of the stress and all of the information flowing at the time. Hmm. And they needed to step outside you know, of those events so they could more clearly see their role and see the decisions that they needed to make. Um, so the book really is, is a look at some of those historical figures, but then also talking to current day leaders and how has solitude fortified their ability to see more clearly, to have better intuition, to be more creative, to remain emotionally balanced, and then to have moral courage to, yeah. you know, to move forward when decisions are unpopular. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And really the, the hypothesis of the book is that to be able to do all those things, you need to be comfortable and you need to practice, at least for pockets of time, spending time with yourself and without other people reminding you and telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what I love about you going deep with that synopsis is, you know, you just shared about so many of the leadership roles that you take on. What's some practical ways that you apply finding your solitude? Is it like running? Is it more of a meditation? Is it more like long walks? What does that look yeah. like in your life and your career? Yeah, so I think that I would say more broadly than me is that solitude looks very differently for different people mm -hmm. um, based upon the constraints that they face in their job and in their, um, their personal lives as well. For me, you know, I've got four kids age seven and below. So mm -hmm. solitude is something that is certainly difficult to come by. If I want it to be a reality in my life, I need to be very deliberate about how I go about doing it. 
So just some of the practical ways that I achieve solitude. And again, to be clear, the way we define solitude is it's the subjective state of mind where the mind is isolated from the input from other minds. So much of what we talk about is like you can achieve and you can practice solitude in, in a Starbucks just as readily as you can on the top of Mount Rainier. You know, mm -hmm. and that's because it's all about, are you isolating your mind from other people and, and thinking for yourself? You know, that's really a big part of, you know, our message, you know, when we talk about solitude and for me, so for me, what it look like practically, I, when I drive places, you know, mm -hmm. I often have phone calls with people, but if not, I often turn the radio off and I just drive in complete silence. Wow. Um, I enjoy maybe a little bit strong of a word, but uh, you know, I enjoy picking weeds out in my front yard. <laughs> um, I, you know, I go out there and I just, and for half an hour, it's, I get kind of in, in a, a Zen-like state, you know, where I'm just picking the weeds and I'm not thinking about anything deliberately and ideas just come to my mind. But, but certainly as, as we talk about in the book, for me, the most personal and the most effective way that I practice solitude is through running. Now, Team Red, White, and Blue is all about the power of running with other people. And I think that on a lot of days, I really enjoy running with other people and being in the presence of others and they're challenging you and pushing you and you're having great dialogue and great conversation. But several times a week, you know, I really carved out that time to make sure that I run on my own. Mm -hmm. And I spend that time, you know, without, you know, the GPS device, without my tracker on my cell phone, without music, I just, and I run. And ideally, you know, I run surrounded by mother nature, but I run and I just quiet all the noise of the world. And it's amazing to me how centered I am when that run is over, but also some of the ideas that come to my mind on that run. And I usually let my mind wander. You know, I'm not, I'm someone who is very draconian and focuses deeply uh, when I'm in solitude. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, at least when I'm running, I tend to be more hey, let my mind bounce around and take me and pull me in whatever direction it feels. And it's amazing some of the inspirational ideas that I come up with as a leader when I'm on those runs and I'm practicing solitude. Wow. Wow. And I think that that's very practical for some that who find joy in running, who find joy in more of an active state, but still want to take on the benefits of solitude and the benefits of learning to lead themselves first in a more systematic way. I think you really, you know, made it, made it practical. Now, many people are going to frown about the weeds, but I think, you know, it just gives perspective that it doesn't have to be a meditation temple. It can be right. something that's a part of your daily life. Yep, absolutely. And there's different ways that it works for different people. And certainly it just you got to find the ways that work for you. But the, one of the big messages of the book that as a leader, you have a responsibility, you have the duty to practice solitude and to quiet all the noise of the world and do some thinking for yourself. And you know, that's one of the big messages we try to drive home is that it's not a luxury. It's not a, it would be really great if you do, but rather as a leader, you have this responsibility. It's, a, I think, a very inspirational and a very powerful message. Wow, wow, wow. Well, if you're listening, you know, I picked up a copy of uh, lead yourself first. And I would suggest you do the same. Even as you read through it, some of the stories and, and the quiet time, like I can see Martin Luther King sitting at his table before penning some of his most powerful words because of the book. It helped me focus on the before the event time, something I've never done before. And I think at times we miss that, just as we know from our military service, before every big mission was training and understanding the mission in a deep way. And I think before 
leading in any substantive way, there is that time of solitude. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And that's our hope. Our hope is to inspire people to be, be reminded of that because ultimately in solitude is where you can bring your mind with clarity and your heart with conviction together. And it's that place that ultimately the great leadership moments are made from. Wow. Wow. That was well said. That was well said. Now, let me ask you this. And I know you do a lot of character building uh, leadership training. Do you ever get to speak to employers? And if you do, what do you share with employers about veterans? So, yes, I talk to employers and companies quite frequently about about this. You know, I say that one of the first things about veterans we know is that in many ways, they are representative of the American people. You know, in in veterans, you're going to see the whole gamut, you know, of people who, you know, are maybe future senators and presidents and CEOs and some that are struggling. And with that, I always highlight that what I see from veterans is the capacity to be team players. Some veterans are great leaders. Some veterans are, you know, want to continue focusing on serving. But most veterans, what I see is, are people who make good teammates. And so much of that is because of what we learn in the military. And so regardless of whether you're talking a nonprofit organization or a company that's looking to hire people, often you're going to find great teammates when you, when you engage with or you hire veterans. Got it. Got it. I really, I really like that takeaway that veterans make great teammates because one of the things that I always try to mention is that, you know, when you see a veteran in front of you and that veteran is either applying for a job or starting a company, uh, two things that veterans know how to lead or veterans know how to support leaders really well. You know, and I think just highlighting that veterans make great teammates brings a perspective that many employers need to hear as they look to build high-performing teams, as they look to build out their workforce and maybe even take on new projects, that they're going to need great team members, people who not only know how to play their role, but when given the opportunity to lead, are willing to train and learn how to lead at that level as well. Yep, 100%. Absolutely correct. Okay. As you train, and I know leadership is a big one, any specific values that you use in a daily basis, in a daily way that just helps you maintain a high level of engagement and a high level of success in your roles as you just transition from uh, role to role as leadership to leadership task to leadership task? Yeah, I think so. My top character strength is enthusiasm and my second strength is optimism. And I think that I leverage both of those strengths pretty much every hour of the day. You know, enthusiasm is the combination of energy and excitement for the task at hand. And I believe that's really, really important from a values position to, you know, to be excited, to be engaged and to think of, you know, how I can use that strength, I think is really important because anytime I speak with anybody, I want them to know that I'm excited about what I'm talking to them about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a big one. And then there's, you know, optimism. I think that, you know, our country right now is a little short on optimism across the board. I think that as you think about the future, a big part of it is, is the uncertainty of the role of artificial intelligence and all the things going on, you know, surrounding um, the continued automation and the effect that's going to have on jobs. But while I think that for certainly reason to be concerned right now, you know, about the future of the country, I think that optimism is absolutely imperative. You know, that's believing that there's good in the future and working towards it. And to me, you know, those two strengths are central 
to my leadership roles in organizations. And anytime I'm speaking with anybody, whether it's on a podcast or in person, or it's a company or second grade kids, you know, in a school that we partner with at the Positivity Project, you know, that enthusiasm and that optimism is really critical from where I sit. And they are my, my top two strengths that I'm able to call upon and leverage rather, you know, rather naturally. Wow. Wow. Now I'm going to ask this. Is that something you can teach or is that just something that you adapted as you uh, face each challenge and realize that, hey, when I apply enthusiasm and when I have this optimistic outlook, I can face the same difficult task and just see better, consistent, more consistent results? So I think, you know, so both, I think for me, it's natural. Both of those character strengths are somewhat natural, but I also think that you can teach it. Now you can't teach it in an unauthentic way. Otherwise it doesn't really work. There are some people who are just not necessarily going to be very enthusiastic on the outside in terms of what you see out of them. And that's fine. But I think enthusiasm can show in many different ways. And one of the ways that it can show is in your passion or your excitement for the task at hand and for what you're doing. Yes, you can definitely train it, but ultimately there is, you know, for it to be authentic, there are certain strengths that, you know, we just have that, that come naturally to us and ones that don't. And I think that some of the times you know, there is a limitation to how much we can do. Okay. Okay. Now, I know you get to see this in various forms as well. When you get to talk to service members right at the beginning of their transitions process and you really sit them down and have a heart to heart with them. What are some of the messages that you're communicating in that moment? So I think it goes back to what I shared earlier, that transition is difficult. I and mean, no matter who you are, you go through identity foreclosure. Mm. You are no longer that person looking, wearing the same uniform in the mirror every day, right? There's that component of it. And then in the heart to heart is ultimately that, you know, that sometimes the challenges of transition, you know, might persist. They might be on for a while. You may not find, you know, you might find a job, but then you might leave that first job after a year, right? Or you right. might find a job and, and it's not what you thought it would be. And that ultimately life is a journey and you've got to have trust in the process. And that if you've put yourself into the best position possible where, you know, you're doing all that you can, you're, you're talking to the right people, you're searching for the best job that, Sometimes the chips fall where they may, and then you have to reorganize and regroup. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's important. A lot of times veterans that are struggling with transition come up to me and say, yeah, well, I just really thought that I was going to be able to find a job real, you know, relatively easily, or I thought I was going to be able to go back to you know, my hometown or back to this city. And it's just very dangerous, obviously, to, assess, to assume that you are going to go be able to find a job or find your, you know, your purpose or be excited in a certain location, because the reality is it might not be that easy to be able to right. do that. Right, right. So yeah, so that's a big part of it as well that, you know, I think when talking to them, having that heart to heart conversation, and that's fine. So just as long as you're not expecting it to be this like smooth, linear path. And, and I think that, you know, I think that a lot of people in life, and to include veterans, often expect transitions to be somewhat linear, and they're just not. Right, right. And I think what really stood out to me was when you use the term identity foreclosure. And I think if you hear it that way, you understand that you're transitioning just beyond a role, just beyond a job, you're transitioning culture, yep. you know? And I think identity foreclosure really speaks to that culture shock, that culture shift that's inherent in transitioning from an organization as all encompassing as military service. Absolutely. No, you're exactly right. 
Okay. In addition to your book, Lead Yourself First, what else is on your summer reading list or what are some of your go-to books? You know, would you just need to, I guess, refocus, rethink some things or just some books you enjoy reading? I've got a few books that are absolute staples for me that I usually read every and reread every couple of years. And I just think they're so powerful. One is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. That is such a phenomenal book. Uh, and the other is a Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl Wow, um, about the Holocaust and his view of the Holocaust through the eyes of a survivor. Mm-hmm. Also happened to be a psychiatrist. So he wow. understood wow. the human mind and, and suffering better than most. Those two books right there are just phenomenal. They talk about purpose and meaning. They talk about um, the journey of life and the ups and the downs and how to reframe those ups and downs in life to be able to see them positively. And I think those books are great staples that I would always recommend to anybody. You know, I think I'm also interested in, you know, reading, you know, this summer, um, you know, a little bit of the, some old stuff by people like John Locke, Um, you know, uh, fascinating. And I'm in looking at some philosophers and thinking, who are people writing about 150, 200, 100 years ago? and thinking about philosophy, because I think that we're at this interesting juncture of the world where there's a lot of really big, heady, philosophical questions that we need to grapple with in our lives. And then just positive psychology, you know, that's what I'm, I really pride myself on positive psychology and staying fresh in that. So there's a book called Character Strengths and Virtues, a classification system by Dr. Chris Peterson and Martin Seligman. And I'm going to read that book. It's about 800 pages and I'll be reading it chapter by chapter. And Again, really refresh my knowledge, my understanding of positive psychology and of the 24 character strengths. Okay. Okay. I think that, you know, really gives our listeners some ideas into the mindset. And what, what I like about the titles, it varies from The Alchemist to Viktor Frankl, but there is this theme of, hey, you're going to face some hard situations. And if you can frame them correctly, you can take that one step beyond it that unlocks what's next. And I think that gives me a bit into your mindset in how you nurture and cultivate uh, your thinking habits and even how you prepare, as you mentioned, the books on psychology or or books from writers from 100 years ago. It just reminds us to stop forgetting that there's so much wisdom to be uncovered what's already been uh, said. And yeah, that's, that's really great intuition, uh, Bernard. I mean, that's to me is so much of this is how do you have the right mindset amid the chaos, you know, amid the failure, amid the, the suffering and the struggle. And, and a lot of this stuff is not, these are not necessarily new ideas in many ways. Some of these best ideas have already been written about and uncovered, you know, a while ago. Uh, the Alchemist is 25 years old. Um, Victor Frankl wrote his book, you know, 1940s. So, right, right. Uh, so yeah, so I think that there is some real power in that. And it's really incredible when you have the capacity to, to take the right mindset and take the right approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. In closing, what parting words of wisdom, any guidance, any direction, any run the old glory relays for right. us? <laughs> You know, the biggest things I would say, you know, I do think it is, and I've sort of resurfaced to this point in my life about the importance of reading as a leader and how important it is to read uh, to be a better leader. I think that's, that's super important, you know, but ultimately, you know, a lot of what we do at Team Red, White, and Blue and what we're talking about in the Positivity Project is about the power of relationships 
you know, the best advice I would give people this summer and in their entire life is to really lean into their relationships. Um, people are inherently complex. There is going to be challenges that come with life no matter what. And I think that it's really important for us to, again, lean into our relationships, even when we don't necessarily want to and it's not comfortable because our, the quality of our social relationships with our family and friends in life is the number one predictor of life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It also helps you to be healthier, to live longer, to be happier. Our relationships are just so highly correlated with just about every positive outcome we want. And if you just think about it, when is life rough? When is it not good? when our relationships are struggling uh, right? and, yeah, and when is it yeah. good our relation, you know, when our relationships with people are strong. So I would really encourage people to think about how to lean into those relationships they have with people in their life. And to, even if that might be uncomfortable at times, right. To do that because there's such powerful uh, value to be gained from our relationships with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, again, I just want to thank you deeply for uh, being on the show, for sharing your, expertise and your insights. You know, I just also want to thank you for continuing to lead. I know that at times, you know, you've had a, such a long military career and you're still serving. And, you know, for many, doing that and family and also continuing to lead in our communities can at times be overwhelming. But I just want to thank you for all your work with Team Red, White, and Blue. I get to see that firsthand here in uh, my hometown, Seattle. So, you know, just thank you for that. And thank you for continuing to lead. And thank you for developing this generation's and next generation's leaders and instilling deep values and more importantly, showing them how to authentically showcase their character. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It certainly is, as anybody who knows, who has multiple irons in the fire, stressful, but ultimately, again, you know, pursuing things of meaning and value, that stress is good stress. It helps us grow. It helps us be stronger. So I'm very excited for and honored to have the opportunity you know that i that i do have so uh, to be you know a leader in multiple organizations and i really thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts here tonight i hope that provided some value and some insight um, that might be worthwhile to some folks and some of your listeners and uh, again thanks so much for having me my pleasure thank you again mike and you have a great evening thanks a lot you too